Seven letters, three syllables, that wonderful word, Calvary. Someone has said that without Christ, the Bible makes no sense. And without Calvary, the Bible makes no difference. And I think, whoever said it, put it very well. Without Christ, the Bible makes no sense. And without Calvary, the Bible makes no difference. Hallelujah tonight. There is a place called Calvary uh, that has made the difference in our lives. And if it hasn't made the difference in your life tonight and you're saying, Pastor, it doesn't apply to me because I've never been to Calvary and I've never been washed in the blood of the Lamb, it can make the difference in your life tonight. Sadly, most modern versions of the Bible have removed Calvary. Here's the common English Bible, one of the popular Bibles that's around today. And this is its rendering of the text. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him. But there's no Calvary. Contemporary English version. When the soldiers came to the place called the skull. They nailed Jesus to a cross. But again there's no Calvary. The English standard version. And when they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him. Can you see the pattern here? These versions that have been translated over the last century or so. No Calvary. I want to tell you folks tonight, I wouldn't like to be reading a Bible that doesn't have Calvary in it. The message. That's a popular one today. You often hear the message being quoted. When they got to the place called Skull Hill... They crucified him. But where is Calvary? The NIV. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. The uh, New Revised Standard Version. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there. I could go on and on and on. But the sad reality and the common denominator in all of these modern versions is Calvary has been removed. Most of the modern versions have removed it. Now, not all of them. There are a few who, that haven't. And we have to be even-handed and honest about it. And one of the versions that hasn't removed Calvary is our beloved authorized version. You see, the authorized version comes from uh, Wycliffe's translation. You remember the Morning Star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe. He translated the Bible from Latin. And Wycliffe was the first uh, man, the first translator to use the word Calvary. And then, of course, you've got William Tyndale's translation of the New Testament published in 1525. Uh, which also contained Calvary 
And, and Tyndale got it from Wycliffe. And then you've got Cranmer's Bible, 1539, with Calvary. Can you see, folks, it's been passed down, this precious word that we love. The Geneva Bible of 1557. Again, Calvary. The, the, the Reims Bible, 1582. And then we arrive at our authorized version, the King James Bible of 1611. And in Luke 23, 33, you still got Calvary. Still there. What a wonderful word it is. Hundreds of hymns have been written about it. We have sung three of them tonight and we'll sing a fourth before the meeting's over. Many churches are named after it. Calvary, such and such a church. It's a wonderful word and the people of God love it. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. The 29th of May, 1953, was a great day because that was the day that Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest. But I want to tell you folks tonight, the greatest day of all, the greatest day in the history of this world was the day when the Savior climbed Mount Calvary. And that's what I want to speak on for a few moments tonight at the end of the service. Calvary. That's the word that Luke uses here. The beloved physician, Luke, Dr. Luke. So you have the beloved physician here, and he's writing of the beloved son. And he uses just four words to describe what happened at Calvary that day. Just four words in our text. You notice it there, Luke 23, 33. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. I want to just consider those four words tonight, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, we will understand to, to some degree something of what happened at that place called Calvary. So the first of those four words, there, there they crucified him. It's taking us to the scene of the crime now. It's taking us to the locality of our Savior's crucifixion. Uh, where exactly was it that he was crucified? It was at Calvary. The place which is called Calvary. There they crucified him. You know, it was a long journey to the cross, wasn't it, for the Lord Jesus? It was a long journey. Because it didn't just start at Bethlehem when he was born. No, you've got to go way back long before that, way back to the pages of Old Testament Scripture. And you need to keep going way back to creation. And even before that, because the journey to Calvary for the lovely Lamb of God began before the foundation of the world. That's what Peter says. Before the foundation of the world. It was in the plan of God that Jesus would die on Calvary. It was his plan before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was his plan before creation took place. Before a star was hurled into space. Before man was created. 
before this, this universe was spoken into existence, Calvary was planned before the foundation of the world. Some, you see, there's some people think, oh, well, God had planned um, originally and initially that, you know, Adam and Eve would live a good life and by their good works, they would live forever in sweet fellowship with their maker. And then whenever they failed, whenever they sinned, then God uh, introduced plan B, which was for Jesus to die on the cross. I want to tell you, folks, there's only one plan and there has only ever been one plan. There is no plan B when it comes to salvation. It's just always been plan A, that the Lord Jesus would die and it was planned before the foundation of the world. Before the creation of this universe, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit had met in, in the councils of eternity and had planned that there would be a place outside Jerusalem where the second person of the Trinity would willingly die for sinners in new buildings. That's where the journey started. The journey to the place called Calvary. And then, of course, down through the pages of the Old Testament, you've got pictures and signposts pointing forward to the cross. Shadows of the cross directing us forward to the day whenever the Savior would finally be born and would enter, enter into this scene of time. And as we have already said, he was born, born in Bethlehem. And there's the cradle and the angels, as it were, huddle around the cradle. And they're amazed that the Lord of glory is born in a, in a, in a filthy stable. And you know, folks, the cradle wasn't too far from the cross. Just a matter of miles, just a short distance from Bethlehem to Calvary's hill outside Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus, he's born into the world for one reason and one reason only, to go to the cross. And then when he reaches the age of 12, he makes his way with his parents to Jerusalem for Passover. And he's there. And I can just imagine him not only being in the temple and puzzling the doctors, but I can imagine him going to the place, visiting Calvary, spending time there, meditating, considering, and thinking on the place that had been planned for all eternity, where he would bleed and die. And the time of his crucifixion is drawing nearer. It was in 2007 that I had the privilege of visiting Calvary on a trip to Jerusalem. I know that some of you have been there as well. To the place that's known as Gordon's Calvary. General Charles Gordon, who was a British army officer, moved to Jerusalem in 1883. And the place where he lived overlooked 
what's known today as the garden tomb. And General Gordon, as he looked across from his residence, he saw the skull-shaped hill and the eyes and the nose and the mouth there at Calvary. And he believed that this was the place where the Lord had been crucified. And he was one of the strongest advocates for that site as being the place where the Lord Jesus bled and died. Gordon's Calvary. The place. There they crucified him. But notice the second word. There they crucified him they who's the they who was it that was guilty of the saviour's death well at the cross you've got the Romans haven't you you've got the Roman soldiers who are there the legionnaires and they're there just to perform this act they're well used to it these rough burly Roman soldiers I mean they've crucified 30,000 Jews that's what they estimate the number of people, number of criminals who were crucified at the time of Christ. 30,000 other people. But you know there was someone who was different. The Lord Jesus was different from 29,999 of those people who were crucified. There was one person who was different. Out of the 30,000 crucified at that time, Jesus was different. His crucifixion was different. And the Roman soldiers that day, they realized that there's something different about this man on the middle cross. And finally, that old centurion, he cried out at the end of the day, having seen the way that the master behaved, so different from all the other malefactors that, they've cruci that they'd crucified. And by the way, the word malefactor means evildoer. Evildoer. Remember Psalm 37, fret not thyself because of evildoers. You could put in there, fret not thyself because of malefactors. The Romans were there and the old centurion, he's converted at the cross. The Romans, but you've also got the rabble. There's the rabble at the cross. The mob who hurl abuse at him who mock the Savior, who ridicule him, crying to him, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross, taunting him. But he didn't come down. Aren't we glad that he didn't come down? That he stayed there? Aye, the Romans were there and the rabble was there. But what about the robbers? The robbers. The two malefactors, as we have already said, are the two evildoers. One was saved and one was lost. You see, the Lord Jesus is the great dividing line in human history. Which side of the cross are you on tonight? We're inclined, I suppose, to think about those two thieves and think we're better than them. That's human nature. Pride and 
thinking that we're holier than others, that somehow we're not right down in the gutter like those two malefactors, those two evildoers. But I want to tell you, folks, whenever I think about those two men, I think of myself. And I realize that I am every bit as bad and every bit as evil as those two robbers who were nailed beside the Savior that day. And the Lord knows it tonight. And he knows that we're all the same. That we're not one iota, not one jot better than the malefactors. Not one iota or jot better than those two evildoers. The same blood that cleansed the dying thief. Is the same blood that each one of us tonight must be cleansed in. They, there they crucified him. But then I want you to notice the third word, crucified, crucified. Bad enough that the Son of God should die, that he should have to die. For wretches, for rebels like us, but for him to die such a, a, such a shameful, ignominious death, well, that just was beyond the pale. It's, it's amazing to think that he would be called upon to endure such a death for us. And you see, Saul of Tarsus could not accept that the Messiah would die on a rugged cross, on a, on a Roman cross, he just couldn't accept it. Yes, he could accept that, that Messiah would die. That wasn't the stumbling block for Saul of Tarsus. The stumbling block was the fact that he was crucified. You see, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, a person who was crucified, who was nailed to the tree, had the curse of God upon them. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23. Verse 22, just to get the context, and if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. He that is hanged is accursed of God. Somehow Paul couldn't accept this. He, he was not willing to take it in that the Messiah was cursed, that he died under a curse. But then there was the day whenever Saul of Tarsus met the risen Christ and it all changed. And that's the way it is, folks, whenever you meet the risen Christ. Everything changes. And no longer does Paul think of the cross as something shameful, as something embarrassing. But now, listen, can you hear him? Galatians 6 and 14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He glories in the cross. He glories in the crucifixion of Christ. You see, Saul or Paul realized that the Lord Jesus went through all that agony for him. 
the open wounds, the dislocation of every bone in his holy body, the exposure to the weather, cramp, thirst, flies, fever, tetanus, the list goes on. We can hardly even scratch the surface of the sufferings that the Lord Jesus endured for us. And uh, as preachers, we often struggle to find words to describe it. So, friends, you'll, uh, you'll sympathize with us as we struggle to find words from the English la- in the English language to describe what the Lord of glory went through at Calvary. There they crucified. Now let's come to the last word, him. You see, this is what makes Calvary so astounding. It was him who was crucified. It was no ordinary person. It was the maker of the universe, the creator of all things. The eternal God who was crucified there. In John chapter 1 verse 3. John uses the word him. The same word that Luke uses in our text. There they crucified him. What does John say in John 1 3? All things were made by him. This is the him who was crucified. All things made by him. Have you seen the stone at Tollymore Forest Park? I haven't seen it in the flesh. It's on the bucket list, and if I can find the right path along the Shimna River, I'll be there someday. But there's the, the, the boulder. Stop and look around and praise the name of him who made it all. John 1 verse 3. He's the one who was crucified. But then in Acts 10 verse 43, we read, To him give all the prophets witness. Him. There's that word again. To him give all the prophets witness. All the Old Testament scriptures were pointing forward to him. To him. Speaking of him. Remember what we said at the start? Without Christ, the Bible makes no sense. Without Christ, the Old Testament makes no sense. It's just a history lesson. About the nation of Israel. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. Oh they did worship him. The angels. And then he entered into our scene of time. And my the angels were speechless. As he left the ivory palaces. To die. For we sinners. We read in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him. In the Lord Jesus. Think about that tiny bundle of humanity at Bethlehem. Wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. There dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
Think about that little boy playing with the shavings in, in Joseph's workshop in Nazareth. Or standing by the wash tub alongside Mary helping with the washing. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There they crucified him. He grew up. He moved out among people. A word from him and the storms were stilled. At his touch leprosy fled. At his will fish flung themselves gladly into Simon Peter's net. Loaves and fishes multiplied in his hands. Water turned into wine when he willed it. Everywhere there was proof that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But here's the amazing mystery. And here's wickedness beyond all wickedness. There they crucified him. John the Baptist in John chapter 132. It's described there of John that he saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon who? Him. The only person that the spirit could ever descend upon. Holy Spirit for 4,000 years had been brooding over fallen humanity looking for one person, even just one individual that he could rest upon uh, and in which in whom he could make his home. But he found no one. But then on the banks of the Jordan he found the one he was looking for The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world and the Spirit descended upon H-I-M, upon him, the one who was crucified. And then there, as the Spirit descended upon him, the Father speaks, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But what's the rest of it? Hear ye him. Not Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or Mary or the Pope or one of the giants of the church, but him, hear him. There they crucified him. And they led him in the tomb because in the place called Calvary where he was crucified, there was a tomb. And Jesus was led there And his clay, that human body of his, lay for three days and three nights. And the devil laughed and all hell rejoiced. There's a party in hell for three days. But then on the third day, he came back to life. And he's the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. There they crucified him. What seemed to be an awful tragedy turned into the greatest triumph of all. Christ was risen. You know, those of us tonight who are saved, we have discovered Calvary. We've discovered it in a very personal way, in a saving way. 
And we love every time we sing a hymn that mentions that place. And every mention of Calvary is music to our ears. We have discovered it. Just like General Gordon discovered Calvary in 1883, just the same we spiritually have discovered it. Let me just pose the question tonight. Have you discovered Calvary for yourself? May you discover it this very night.